Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well, despite a few technical problems I don't (laughs) mind sharing with our listeners, but we figured it out and I'm excited to talk more about Choose Your Own Adventure. How are you doing? Oh, same thing. It's, uh, I was just commenting off the air how I am continually amazed by how I'm just um, always beaten by Skype. We are not doing our traditional local <laughs> recording today. We're doing a Skype recording. And just, it, it does not bode well for if we ever live in different geographical regions and we need to continue this podcast. It, it, my ability to operate Skype is just abysmal. So, But other than that, doing really good. And of course, super excited for our topic tonight and the return of one of our most prolific guest experts, as well as a continuation of our previous conversation in a way about um, Netflix slash Black Mirror's Bandersnatch. That's absolutely right. So today our special guest is Keith Donahue, who has been on the show previously to talk about myths related to substance use disorders and James Bond, which I will link to in the show notes. Keith is also my husband, so we are sitting next to each other in our house. Um, And Keith happens to know a lot about Choose Your Own Adventure stories, and we're excited that he could join us today. So how are you doing, Keith? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me back. This is, yeah, this is my third time. So I'm, I'm, I'm an alumni right now. That's right. And yes, I, absolutely. <laughs> or alumnus. <laughs> yes, you're like Steve Martin, the repeated host of Saturday Night Live or something like that. Well, <laughs> perhaps not that funny, but I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. I guess I should also add that in addition to being my husband and liking Choose Your Own Adventure stories, Keith is a clinical psychologist and he also, um, he was a professor for many years like I was, but now is in practice. Yeah. Yeah. I recently, well... Back in the fall, transitioned from being a professor at NDSU, North Dakota State University, to being a uh, psychology resident. So I'm finishing up my uh, training for licensure at uh, Sanford Adult Behavioral Health, so part of a, a healthcare system in our area. So I'm working most days, seeing patients. Uh, it's neat. It's good to be back in full-time clinical practice. Though all of Keith's opinions, we should say, are his own and not necessarily those of his employer. Right. My employer has few or no opinions on Choose Your Own Adventure <laughs> books, but if you hear me say anything about this genre of fiction, rest assured it's my own opinions, not those of the corporation. <laughs> I could clarify that. So, Keith, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal interest or history with Choose Your Own Adventure stories? Um, well... I was a very lonely child <laughs> growing up. I had oh, few friends, and I spent dark. a lot of time in my room. Uh, I, the, that's not entirely true. I, growing up, I, I did live in a suburban development, kind of on a hill near um, a university in the town where I grew up. And it was kind of difficult to get out to see some of my friends. And so I did spend a fair bit of time reading books in my room. 
And at some point, um, probably when I was about kind of seven or eight years old, I came across Choose Your Own Adventure books. That's a series of books which uh, during those years, I mean, this is back in the early 80s, were published by Random House Books, and you could get them at bookstores where they were often in the um, the book order uh, take-homes that the teachers would put in your backpacks at the end of school. So they were around, and I just really liked them. They were a type of book for any of your listeners who are unfamiliar with them, where you would read a, a page or a portion of a page and be given a choice. You know, Shall you go down this path or go down that path? And depending on what you chose, you would turn to a different page and the story would continue. And so I, uh, I really loved those books. And um, over the years, shortly thereafter, as I grew a little bit older, I started collecting Choose Your Own Adventure and other uh, similar books, um, which as we get on in the conversation, we can talk about. And am I mistaking the another set of books, but did you have some correspondence with one of the authors of a, of a Choose Your Own Adventure book that you used to read when you were younger? Oh, no. Well, sort of. Um, the, the other big influence on me growing up, at least in, in, this, in this topic, is when I would go to England in the summer times, not, not every summer, but every few summers with my family to see my grandmother and my aunt and uncle and my cousins, my mom's side of the family is English, uh, I would pick up copies of a series of books called Fighting Fantasy, which were published by Puffin Books back in those years and were actually published in America under a different imprint. But they were kind of like Choose Your Own Adventure, but with the additional uh, kind of uh, mechanic that you could roll dice and apply the numbers to some some stats for a character that you're playing as, and you could kind of have a, a Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing game type experience uh, using just this solo uh, game book. And those were tremendously popular in the UK in the 1980s. I mean, it's almost impossible to overstate how big a deal they were. And so when we go in the summers, I would buy them at used bookstores or my relatives would give them to me and I would play a lot of those. And, and just in the last couple of years, I, I looked up one of the illustrators, not, not an author, but an illustrator whose work I really liked in some of these books and emailed him and surprisingly got a response. So this last summer, the summer before, I exchanged emails with a fellow named Russ Nicholson, who was and is a, a very famous fantasy genre illustrator in England. He, he did illustrations for these fighting fantasy books. He did illustrations for some of the early 1980s Dungeons & Dragons products that TSR UK published uh, for a while. And he's you know, less famous in America, but a big deal over there, at least to the people who play D&D and other sort of fantasy genre stuff. Very cool that you got to connect with him like that. Yeah, it was sort of just a funny thing. The internet's funny that way. Mm -hmm. That's super neat. And I I know I've certainly enjoyed our conversations about the fighting fantasy books. And <laughs> I think even through those conversations and just kind of uh, listening to you visit about it, Keith, I know I got started on Sorcery, the app, as well as a digital kind of remake of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which I haven't gotten to play the actual physical game books yet. And I don't think Sorcery was actually a fighting fantasy book, but kind of in that genre. So it's been kind of cool to connect with some of the um, kind of modern movements. And I think we've kind of got more lined up for that later. But it's just, I think, an interesting topic, an interesting connection. But what I'm I think more curious about or maybe kind of to get to that a little bit later I'm wondering what's some of the just kind of general history or background of choose your, uh, choose your own adventure um, novels or, or books well um, gosh this is something that I, I knew a, a little bit about but in recent years 
is um, I've started to collect some of these books on, on eBay or through u online used booksellers. I've been kind of trying to learn a bit more about. And um, as far as I can tell, uh, the, the history is older than I thought. And it actually dates back to, gosh, at least, um, at least maybe the 1920s or 1930s in the United States. There was a particular book that was published by um, two authors, Doris Webster and Mary Ellen Hopkins, in 1930 called Consider the Consequences. And this um, was not a, a sort of a fighting fantasy Dungeons Dragons type uh, genre. It was more of like a romantic comedy genre novel. And the idea was that you would play as one or two of these different characters who had different kinds of romantic entanglements. And I actually found an image uh, on the internet of the, um, of the sort of inside leaf uh, description of the book and I'll read a paragraph of it right now. It's Consider the Consequences by Doris Webster and Mary Allen Hopkins. Um, Here is a brand new idea in fiction, a story which ends in any of a dozen or more different ways, depending entirely on the taste of the individual reader. And it goes on to describe how you follow the lives of Helen, Roger, and um, Jed, and a couple other different men and women, and they have these different sorts of entanglements, and you get to choose sort of who ends up with who. And the uh, picture, which I, um, I obviously can't show your listeners, shows this woman kind of looking uh, across what looks like a chessboard and seeing different people on it, and you get the sense that she's planning out her moves, she's considering the consequences of these decisions. So, I mean, clearly, you know, humans have been telling each other stories and probably engaging interactively in fiction since before history, but uh, in recent times, or not so recent times, people were developing these types of stories. And that's about the earliest example I could find. But certainly later on, like in the middle part of the 20th century, there were other examples. There's um, a book that was published by someone named uh, Alan George. And I say someone because as far as I can tell, this is probably a pseudonym for the writer. The book was called Treasure Hunt. It was published in 1945 and was a children's book where children would read and get to make decisions and maybe find a pirate's treasure or maybe not. Um, and so there are other examples kind of in the early and middle part of the 20th century of these types of books where readers got to read, of course, and make decisions. Um, and like I said earlier, or as I think we were discussing before the show started, um, it's interesting to me that a lot of these books, uh, not all, but a lot, come out of the, er uh, out of the area of education. So... Um, there are examples that um, the psychologist B.F. Skinner, who we're familiar with and probably many of your listeners would be familiar with if they took intro psychology. Um, Skinner uh, developed a series of books in what he called programmed learning. This would be types of books where you would read a certain passage and you'd be presented with a problem. Depending on your answer for the problems, you would go to other passages in the book. And this would allow you to, over time, learn or if you got the answers wrong, be corrected in your, your learning. Can um, I just, yeah, sure. for any listeners who maybe they took psychology a while ago or don't have Skinner um, re easily retrieved, do you mind just giving a brief uh, overview of who Skinner is? Oh, gosh. The um, context of it. Uh, B.F. Skinner was um, a psychologist who is most associated with a movement in psychology called behaviorism. This was a, a type of, um, this was an area of study in psychology which was very much concerned with how animals, including people, learn to do new behaviors, as, as you guessed from the name. So if you 
if, if you saw in your intro site class or if you've ever seen on like a nature documentary or science documentary, the image of the rat in the cage and the rat presses a lever when the light goes on. And if it presses the lever enough, the pellet drops down the chute and the rat gets to eat it. That rat has learned the behavior pressing the lever through a process that Skinner called operant conditioning. You know, what you do yields consequences and whether those consequences are rewards or punishments has some bearing on the frequency and the intensity of that behavior. So, you know, in the area of, um, I should say, Skinner wrote expansively about a lot of different areas of, of applied psychology, and one of them was education. He was interested in improving how people learned, including children in schools, and this was one of his ideas, that we should, instead of just having people read books or listen to lectures, we should have people uh, students doing things and then based on their responses uh, to problems they get immediate feedback which would then shape the additional information they got. You know, if you got the question right you got to skip ahead. If you've got it wrong you had to do remedial questions until you got them right. Um, it's not you know in some ways it's a very modern idea. A lot of uh, modern uh, pedagogy is very similar and probably in some ways based on some of those early theories. Thank you. All right. I'm amazed I could do that. It's late here. And I, haven't, <laughs> I am I, too. That's why I asked you. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> thought much about Skinner in years. Uh, so yeah, I, I was surprised to, to learn this while I was kind of doing a, a quick history of this area of writing. Um, there are some other examples, like for instance, in the 50s and up through the 70s, there was a whole uh, type of textbook called tutor textbooks, which are basically the same idea. But if we want to get away from just uh, the teaching stuff and get into maybe fiction and, uh, well, back to the roots, back to fiction, the Choose Your Own Adventure series, which we're probably the most familiar with, was published between 1979 and 1998, again, by Random House Books. This was a was or is a uh, publisher that did a lot of stuff with children's books. And uh, again, if you were a kid in the 80s, like I was, they were just all over the place. Your, you know, your library had random house books. Your your uh, bookstore sold them. The, um, the take-home book ordering forums all had them. Um, in more recent years, a different company has picked up uh, publishing uh, these same books, a company called Chuseco, which is an odd name. But they, they now own all of the old uh, stories, and there are hundreds of them, or at least well over a hundred of them. Choose your own adventure. Like I said, this kind of very common uh, approach where people read, they make decisions, and how they uh, choose to advance the story might lead them to succeeding in whatever their quest is or, or failing and, and dying. And uh, I must say, for kids' books, there are often some sudden and rather unfortunate deaths. So it's not exactly mm. grisly or gruesome, but I was reading through a few of these with our daughter a while ago, like last fall, because I saw them in used bookstores uh, online, or, um, and I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll get our daughter involved in these. She'll like them as much as I did. And I just don't th I think she's a little kind of put off by, well, if we chose the wrong thing, we fell off the side of the mountain or the, the monster ate us, and then we had to stop. Um, I said, no, that's sort of the fun. You you fail at this and then you learn and you do again. And I think she wasn't as impressed as I was at that same <laughs> age. Oh, well. And that happened in, uh, that kind of stuff happens in, which we'll talk about in a little bit, in Netflix. It's Is it Man versus, what is that? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you versus Wild, I think they're yeah, calling you, it. Yes. I don't a know play why on I Man versus Wild. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, because yes. it's a choose-your-own-adventure mm -hmm. thing. But it has a lot of that kind of stuff, basically, um, 
if you <laughs> you can rappel down the mountain or I don't remember what the other word was, but it's basically sliding. And if you slide, you get to the edge of a cliff. So it does, I mean, it adds that drama, but you're right. Sometimes it can be uh, less kid friendly. Right. I mean, in, in a way, I think this is kind of why I would argue this, uh, this genre, you know, this format, uh, interactive fiction is kind of having a, a, a bit of a moment now. Um, I think some of it for people like me is just nostalgia, right? Like I, I like the books that I liked when I was eight and I like the form of Dungeons and Dragons that I liked when I was eight or 10 years old. So I can, I can go find and buy those things online now. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think there is, you know, there is something in this approach to telling a story which is true now and it was true you know probably in the 80s it was true in the 1930s which is it kind of captures your attention so netflix probably is thinking or many people i'm sure netflix are thinking we're in competition now with other streaming services how do we make sure people watch our shows instead of other people's shows how do we make sure they watch our shows and kind of pay attention enough that they get engrossed in the story so they don't just click to something else well, what if we um, allow them to have some agency in the story and affect how things play out? Um, again, that that's probably part of why these these types of approaches were useful for teaching. They capture your attention, and they seem to capture the attention of uh, of viewers. You know, I, I liked Bandersnatch a lot. I stuck with it much more than I would with most Netflix shows, where I usually get bored or I go off to do some other task. Our daughter really likes uh, the Minecraft version mm. that Netflix does, which is a similar kind of choose-your-own-adventure format. Um, have you done that one, Brennan? No, I haven't. I've seen it just scrolling through, but I haven't had a chance to try it. I mean, it's definitely geared towards kids, but it's mm-hmm. still, it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah I mean, sure. our, our, our daughter liked that. Our, our son liked it as well. He seemed to like the uh, You vs. the Wild uh, one uh, with the guy from Survivor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, it's kind of interesting to see that that level of, a, of, um, of attention capture. And it's probably part of the design. I mean, I, I read online. Uh, about Bandersnatch that it was very costly to develop it. it I think one estimate I read said it cost Netflix about four times as much as a standard episode of Black Mirror costs or it cost the production company which then billed Netflix for it um, because they had to shoot all these extra scenes and mm-hmm. do the com- develop the computer software that would support the decision making but it was probably a gamble that paid off or um, you know, an investment that will pay off over time because it was a really good show and I think it was well-reviewed and I would certainly watch another one that had that interactive quality to it. And you mentioned that one of the things that that's unique about this genre is that there's it, you're prompted to think about your relationship with the character. Do you mind saying more about that? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I, 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 I'm not, you know, a literature critic or you know, I haven't taken a lot of, it's been a long time since I was last in an, in an English class but um, when I was thinking about this episode uh, to talk with you guys, it occurred to me that, you know, beyond just nostalgia and beyond just the uh, the interest of commercial attention capture, you know, keeping viewers, keeping readers, um, there is something kind of interesting about this approach to storytelling. And that is it can allow you um, to ask some interesting questions about relationships and particularly the relationships that exist between uh, the viewer or the reader um, and the author of the piece and also the characters in the piece. You know, of course, when you read any book or read any anything or watch any TV show, those characters are in your head. You're, you're making them in a sense. So there's always some amount of collaboration between what the author is writing and what you're thinking or imagining in your mind, how people exactly look or exactly sound. 
But when you have an interactive, uh, a piece of interactive fiction, uh, you can the author can play around with that relationship and kind of force it to the to the fore. And so in, in Bandersnatch, there's that really interesting part towards the end. And I assume this is like spoiler alert time. I mean, <laughs> probably people have seen the show. Um, there's an interesting part towards the end where um, the the protagonist, who's this computer programmer who is himself trying to develop a kind of a choose your own adventure style uh, game, um, is becoming distraught and, and suffering some sort of a psychotic breakdown. And he sees different symbols and, and sort of clues in his environment and asks aloud, who are you? Who's controlling me? And he has some sense that his choices are not his own. And you as the viewer get to respond, well, I'm watching you on Netflix. And the character responds, well, what the hell's Netflix? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that type of, uh, you know, calling into question, what is your relationship to this character? What's his or her relationship to you? Does it, you know, the character obviously doesn't have any precise independence from you, but it's it's interesting to imagine that such an independence could exist. It kind of forces you into a really weird, kind of uncomfortable place that I think most viewers and most readers are not used to when they read or, or watch a typical show or a typical book. That's neat. And I, I, I don't know if that can be done easily without that interactive quality. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point, and I'm interested in hearing what both you, Keith, and Brandon think about this, but it's it's not the same, but as you mentioned, there are connections with Dungeons & Dragons because you, of course, are choosing what you want to do, and then um, there are some rules and dice and the Dungeon Master that that interact with what path you end up going, but are there similarities there between these books and when you're do you feel like do you have the same sense when you're playing those games or what's different i don't know i've, I've been talking a lot brandon i should probably let someone else speak what, what do you think sure yeah i'm happy to offer my thoughts i was just reflecting back a little bit while kind of thinking about this topic and maybe chan- tangentially kind of getting to your answering your question i was reflecting on i played a lot of the um i guess played i use that term loosely a lot of the choose your own adventure goosebumps books while i was younger which were a lot of fun i thought and and i'm trying to just reflect on that experience a little bit and how it maybe relates to dungeons and dragons which i play currently and i think there is at least in my opinion and experience some element uh, element of similarity wherein at least you are kind of making these choices and there are reactions and consequences as a result for the character who you're controlling or making those choices for. And so you do get to kind of experience a similar sense of adventure and consequence. I know that both in the choose your own adventure format as well as in Dungeons and Dragons, I've made poor decisions and and the character avatar who I'm controlling has, has, you know, experienced, you know, suffering or or loss as a result. So it is an interesting connection. And I do think there's some overlap. What I think is unique about Bandersnatch is that I think at least in Dungeons and Dragons, when, when I make a choice for my character or my character makes a choice there, the consequences and the results of that are determined through the dice as well as through the DM describing it. And a lot of it's just done in imagination or kind of a group imagination, which is a lot of fun. And obviously I play almost every week and enjoy it very much. It's certainly probably my favorite hobby, but I found the experience of Bandersnatch to be particularly unique and maybe, um, I don't know, potent almost, especially in the scene that you were describing, Keith, where I was explaining to the kind of main character that 
I was making these choices for him and I was watching Netflix, which is just an entertainment service uh, decades in the future. And the kind of the just visceral reaction that I was actually seeing was so it was really powerful and it really got me kind of connected. I think that was my favorite part of the whole experience. And so I think there's something really unique about that medium that I don't get maybe the same kind of uh, connection and kind of engagement as when I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons consistently, or even when using the book format. So I think there's something really interesting about the medium and how it's evolved, but absolutely I experienced some kind of connection or similarity in kind of my feelings and my kind of excitement and engagement through all the different um, choose your own kind of um, mediums or formats. Yeah, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, part of that one show. And um I should say there, for for me, probably the fun part of it is when you play Dungeons and Dragons or any other kind of role-playing game, uh, I think there's an idea that you should either, you should invest yourself quite a lot in the character. So we're going to play as if I'm, you know, whoever, the barbarian or the wizard, and, and he's going to do this or she's going to do this. And, and I think there's kind of a discouragement of meta gaming, like you're know, imagining, like, well, I know as as Keith who lives in this world, certain things about what are likely to happen, and I'm aware that I'm rolling dice, and I know there's certain probabilities associated with these outcomes. Um, but this character in the world that he is in or she's in, like, that person doesn't know. And w- when we when these moments come up in in uh, in gameplay with Dungeons and Dragons or, or similar games. You know, someone, the dungeon master or another player, said, you know, discourages, says, like, well, no, let's not metagame this too much. Let's just play as if we're really these these uh, these characters, these barbarians and fighters and wizards. Um, that's fine, and that probably makes a lot of sense to just keep the gameplay flowing and help the story develop. But you could imagine a version of Dungeons and Dragons that really forces that metagaming and says, well, wait a sec, you know, what is my relationship to, I don't know. Rothgar the fighter you know what you know what would he think of me if he had some sense of me as his his kind of puppet master mm-hmm. would he resent this would he be happy with this am i what is my responsibility to him you know i think all of us um when we play our characters we want to we want them to succeed on the quest or, or level up so they get more powers. But I think we also kind of want them to be happy, which is a funny thing, right? Like you don't get experience points for like, well, Rothgar didn't fight the dragon. And in fact, he didn't win any treasure and he's still level one. But boy, he's living his good life and he's happy. <laughs> um, we, you, you could imagine a game that really tried to do that. Um, and in the case of Rothgar, the fighter being happy, that'd be a very happy game. But what if like, you know, you did something, maybe even uh, accidentally, that led to Rothgar being really grievously injured. And now he can't go on adventures. And he just has to sit at home kind of wondering, why did I jump off that cliff that one time? I mean, I didn't think I wanted to, but I just did it. I'm, you know, he lives the rest of his sad life puzzling over this one bad decision that he didn't think he had a lot of agency in. Like, that would be a very different game. And arguably... That example is particularly... That would doesn't be re- sound as fun. No, it, wouldn't, it would be more emotionally fraught <laughs> and it might not be as much fun. But it, I guess what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way is, um, you know... Um, Black Mirror as a as a series is pretty bleak. I mean, yeah, it's why that, that's I, absolutely true. It's like that's why I stopped watching the series. Is I would typically be folding laundry you know, or doing some other task while having the show on, and after a while, it just made me feel sad. So, what did it take to get me back into watching Black Mirror? Well, it took that kind of 
uh, forced kind of um, consideration of the relationship between, you know, a viewer and character. And, you know, maybe you could do that with anything else. I mean, you could read just a traditional novel and you could think to yourself like, wow, you know, how am I imagining this person, this character? Could I imagine him happy? Could I imagine him sad, you know, injured well, you know, sort of anxious, calm? Um, all these things you have a lot of control over in a game like Dungeons and Dragons, and you could uh, do this. It, it's just funny that it's often discouraged that kind of metagame thinking. But you know, there's maybe ways to bring it in in a way that could enhance gameplay. Um, you know, I, I didn't. You have an experience once, Brandon, of like playing a character who was sort of I don't know if he was chaotic and evil, but he was some sort of like an assassin who who ended up killing a bunch of people. But I, I got the sense that you didn't like that and i think you sort of dumped that character made a new one and we sort of retconned that like oh you know that other guy he's just off doing something else the one who liked all the mushrooms that was i was playing that character. yes well, he, was re- he was that, the, <laughs> that was the replacement the replacement guy. character yes. was a happier character <laughs> yes. and I, I mean maybe brandon i don't know if you felt bad about <laughs> authoring the decisions of a bad you know the first character was a bad person i absolutely did yeah so i had created uh the character whose name was thane who was oh, right. yeah an assassin character for our campaign that we're going to play and i think i maybe played all oh, around five sessions or less and uh yeah my plan was to kind of play this brooding kind of assassin character who didn't really care about uh people and so on and so forth and it got so uh kind of a combination of boring and also like inconsistent with my values and the way I mean, obviously, and the way I like that's that's reassuring. My, my values aren't <laughs> that of an assassin, no. Um, but yeah, I, I just didn't. <laughs> good to hear. I didn't feel good playing the character. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I the character just went off to do another adventure and hopefully is still um, living a, a he's living his best a charmed life. <laughs> yes, and then I I very much corrected in the other direction. I played this kind of hardy, selfless dwarf cleric character who over the course of the campaign became, I think, like vegetarian or vegan and a, and a pacifist who wouldn't, uh, I, I think, would harm others but never killed anyone in the rest of the campaign and really didn't even do a lot of so much like offensive combat and really spent the majority of the time healing and kind of buffing allies. Um, so yeah, it was such a change and that character continues to be a favorite of mine. And I just had so much fun for the rest of that campaign with that character. So it was this very interesting connection where I was making, I was making choices that I think if I'm can take a second to get kind of metagamey or a little abstract, I was making choices that I think were consistent with Thane and what he would have wanted, but it didn't, it wasn't fun for me to, to be so, uh, harmful, I guess, and but to do something different and kind of have this what who I thought was kind of this interesting character with kind of a, a cool arc. Um, yeah, it was a lot more fun and and the connection was there and and I just had a lot of I felt good every session, yeah. like being this very helpful kind of jolly dwarf. I, I had a, a, maybe a less intense experience, but similar uh, one in the first campaign of fifth edition D&D that I ever played, which you were the DM for, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, this was kind of a, a memorable time because after many, many years of not playing Dungeons and Dragons, I kind of got back into the hobby and I, I played a, a fighter named um, Ethelwolf, who was 
in my imagination, this kind of really gloomy, dour guy. Like, not not angry at the world, but just sort of disappointed in the world and himself and would sort of just kind of sulk through most of his adventures, um, feeling like luck never worked out for him. And I don't know why I why I picked that character. It just seemed like I wrote a backstory that he'd you know sort of he'd been the lesser son of a minor noble and hadn't inherited anything, so he had reasons to be sad, I suppose. But I found that when I was playing him, I wanted to play that character true to the concept. But I but also doing so made me imagine a sad man, you know, week after week, and and so I tried to. Um, imagine over time that that maybe he grew closer to his companions and sort of felt a sense of camaraderie with them that made his life happier. Or maybe by the end, uh, it was the Ravenloft campaign, so maybe he felt proud that they'd uh, vanquished Strahd, at least temporarily, I suppose, from uh, Barovia and all the people were free of the curse or whatever. But there were these moments when I was playing where I, I kind of felt this weird sort of sense of identification with the character that was complicated by the fact that you know I'm obviously not him but he's a product of my mind and I wondered you know what what do I like about him or what would he like about me and I almost imagined us as two separate men talking to each other um, which didn't really enter into the game I, I don't think uh, I, I don't suppose not that I detected <laughs> not that I remember but it was just a weird time that had little or nothing to do with the mechanics of the game or, or the the particular sort of setting or you know which edition of D&D we were using it was just that forcing to the fore that weird um, kind of difficult to describe relationship between you know the author and the the subject or you know the author and the character or in the case of uh, a choose your own adventure book or bandersnatchers these other things there's the author there's the character and then there's this reader who has some agent some ability to make decisions the for the character yeah Uh, and that's explicit in dungeons and dragons that you're supposed to identify with the character where you can get inspiration points from mm -hmm. the dm so it's kind of like that's part of the the game too. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a there's an attempt to encourage you to role play the character, and that's great. Again, it, I, I think that the game plays more smoothly, and it's probably more fun for most people to just play as if. Like, let's just suspend our, our understanding that we're all just sitting in a room or at a table rolling dice, and just play as if we are these adventurers. That's that's fantastic. Uh, but it's a it's a funny moment that's maybe worth doing once or twice in each campaign to sort of step back and say, wait a second, this is this weird abstraction uh, or set of abstractions taking place in my head. And uh, maybe I can entertain some weird uh, kind of uncertainty as to like, well, what what's this all about? Or might I myself be an abstraction in someone else's mind as you know, you you kind of can go down that rabbit hole as well. Like if you did that every session, it would probably grind the campaign to a halt. It wouldn't be that much fun. But maybe once in a while, or on the car ride home after the session, sort of replay the events in your mind. Uh, this is why I do at least, and uh, and kind of imagine that weird, you know, the space in between the the character and the 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 player. Um, that's that's a weird space that, that exists, but I, 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 in a way we don't, or at least I don't think about it a lot. I have to kind of force myself into into that space. But when I do, it's it's a it's neat. It's neat. it's a neat place to be, I suppose. I'm reflecting a little bit, I think, on just the way that you're describing the maybe slightly different play styles or how you can approach Dungeons and Dragons, where you can 
I think that the trend or the way that we play at least, and I think in some ways the way it's meant to be played is how you've described where it's very much a, you know, you're playing kind of in the mind of your character and, and maybe making these decisions in game as much as possible and trying not to metagame too much. But I'm reflecting a little bit on the specific module that Keith, I know you're familiar with called Tomb of Horrors. And my sense about that is it's meant to be played in a little bit more of the metagame way. And it's a little less based on kind of the role playing because it's very much about uh, kind of thinking your way through these puzzles and traps and trying to navigate through this very intentionally dangerous and unforgiving tomb. And I think that's probably partially a product of the addition um, that Dungeons and Dragons was in when that was written, as well as kind of the intention of Gary Gygax. I think if my understanding is, if my understanding is right, writing that to, create a very genuine challenge for the group that he was playing with. So it is kind of striking or maybe interesting how maybe different editions of Dungeons and Dragons or different modules map onto that more peer choose your own adventure kind of metagame thinking things over uh, play style versus more of the kind of role playing kind of making choices quickly and staying in character kind of style. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there are people who've written whole histories of D&D who, who could say more about this than I could. But, you know, that module, Tomb of Horrors, at least the original edition, was written in 1975. And it was a, a tournament edition module, meaning it was meant to be played at a convention. And I think uh, the flavor of play for that module, and I think for a lot of what people were doing in D&D at that time, was very much still rooted in the traditions and kind of the ethos of wargaming, like tabletop wargaming with miniatures or with little paper chits, which is what Gygax and many of his colleagues were doing for a long time before they developed this game. And, and in that kind of tradition and in that ethos, I think there's, there isn't any sense to identify with the little miniature Peter um, Napoleonic soldiers. It's a sense of this as being a puzzle, like a, a game of chess or a game of checkers, I suppose. It's a puzzle that you're going to solve using your player knowledge of how to manipulate uh, the rules. You know, f not cheat, but follow the rules so as to get through to the end of the battle. And I think in the in the case of Tomb of Horrors, you, you have to use your... I mean, did I play Tomb of Horrors? And that's a, I think I, at one point we did try to play through that as kids, but we probably cheated most of the way and then gave up because it's very hard. But, you know, certainly I will say as a, as a kid in the 80s, there was some very cursory sense to identify with the character, but it was more like playing, maybe playing a, a, a video game that's not very immersive or playing a puzzle game that's not very immersive. We just sort of played, played not as the characters, but kind of with the characters or, or through the characters. And so, yeah, it was about using your player knowledge to solve puzzles. And in this case of Tomb of Horrors, the, the puzzles of the Archlich uh, Assyrac. Um, the whole idea of, of role-playing in role-playing games, like li really leaning into that aspect, I think emerged later. Although it's, it's been a long time since I've looked at some of those early rule books. Um, by the time you got to maybe the early 1980s, I mean, I'm in front of me have my 1983 copy of the, the uh, Frank Metzer um basic D&D rules there is a certain amount of discussion in here of you know playing the character and getting into the role but it's nothing like I think what people like to do now or at least some people like to do now and it's not like there's one right way to play but I, I do think these days there's more of an expectation for 
a deeper type of role playing. I'm going to somehow put myself in the mind of a barbarian in a fantasy land and try to imagine the world through his eyes or see the world through his eyes and act with his mind. Um, whether or not that's possible, I, I don't know, but it is a different play style and it calls for a certain set of assumptions and they're, that's fine. But it's funny to recognize uh, at moments, like I've said a few times now, how how odd that is. I mean, you know, you don't do that very much in your life if you're not a child. I mean, kids play pretend all the time and, and adults can too. And maybe we just need, or I'll say I just need a certain amount of dice rolling and, and sort of bookkeeping to give me the excuse to do that. Um, it's, it's a, again, it's, it's a funny thing to do, especially now being a lot older than what I was when I first started doing this stuff. There was that New York Times article, which I think, I know I shared with Keith, and I think I might have shared with both of you, Mm -hmm. um, that was great, that was about adults playing Dungeons and Dragons as kind of like a social connection thing that's not social media, not that there's anything wrong with that, but this in-person thing where people are playing and how it kind of, it's game playing and collective storytelling and how that can be a really great, like you're saying, a frame for just socializing mm. and for having fun and doing something that's, it's probably got some escapist qualities, but also some kind of engaging your imagination. And I, I, th- I thought that I liked that article. Mm-hmm. Vox also did some, something separate about Dungeons and Dragons a while ago, and it was along a similar theme. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I mean, maybe that's coming back for various reasons, including Stranger Things popularity and stuff like that but it's you're right it's kind of having the set structure maybe facilitates that a little bit yeah yeah it is here just to maybe jump back to a point we made a little earlier uh, it's interesting to to read through some of these books in the case of the choose your own adventure books or the fighting fantasy books or uh, or to play D&D now as an adult um the way it's interesting to do that and then think back to the way this stuff felt when I was about eight or 10 years old. And, and um, I think when I was younger, I just didn't care as much about the characters I played with. It's mm-hmm. not, I wasn't cruel. Like, you know, I, I took no delight in their deaths, but you know, if you were, if you chose the wrong path and choose your own adventure and you fell off a cliff or if you rolled poorly in fighting fantasy and the dragon, you know, killed you, I don't remember it bothering me very much. And it's not like it wrecks me with sorrow or guilt now. But when I play, I am much more uh, worried when I make decisions like, you know, go left down the corridor, go right, you know, up the staircase. Because I immediately start thinking ahead like, well, you know, there's a certain number of combinations of choices that are going to unfold over the next however many pages. And if this is a bad fork that I'm at, I could choose wrong and all my other decisions later will be for naught because I'll already have doomed myself. And that level of kind of fatalism, uh, I think, has just kind of crept into my life as I've gotten older. I mean, obviously, you have a lot more responsibilities at this age than you do when you're a kid. And and not that I'm, uh, I mean, I'm pretty happy with my life. I'm very happy with my life. But it's funny to think about the burden of making decisions is being much greater when you're an adult versus when you're a kid. And if you're a ha- have like me, have pretty happy childhood, you didn't have to worry about stuff too much. And uh, I, I've tried to play through some of the old fighting fantasy bo- books. I've gotten through most of the ones I've played through, but I've noticed myself just much more anxious to make decisions than I think I ever was before. And that, I don't know, that's funny to me to think about. 
Yeah. Brandon, have you gone back and done any of the Goosebump Choose Your Own Adventures as an adult? I haven't, no. I have wanted, though, to pick up a fighting fantasy um, book to play as an adult. Just kind of, I think I like the, I'm at least at this point in my interest, I'm kind of engaged in the fantasy kind of genre. So I think there's mm-hmm. maybe something cool about that. Um, or would be particularly interesting to me about that. But it would be fun to pick up a Goosebumps book or choose your own adventure book to play through as an adult and just kind of relive that experience a little bit. And I I was also just listening to you, Keith, talk about that connection with with, uh, one's character and how that maybe differs slightly in different formats or mediums. I was reflecting on the first 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons campaign that I played in, which was... It was very. It was a fun campaign, and we played for several months and got pretty far into the campaign, at least as far as my understanding of it goes. We didn't actually finish it, and the reason we didn't finish it was because my character made a particularly poor or risky kind of decision, which resulted in the death of another character in the campaign with no opportunity to resurrect that character or anything like that. And this, like I said, was after, I would say, at least several months if not a year of playing this campaign and that death of that character actually caused so much drama and conflict with it like interpersonally within the group that the campaign fell apart and we didn't actually finish it um, nor play Dungeons and Dragons again until I picked up and kind of put a new group together um, with Curse of Strahd which you mentioned already so it, it strikes me a little bit about that that really kind of that intentional way that role-playing or D&D at least is is kind of delivered or played these days with that connection with the character and how that can become so kind of meaningful that it, it can like cause disruptions in interpersonal friendships. And I don't know, maybe that says something about interpersonal social skills or something like that. I, hopefully I'm not getting down kind of that avenue, but it, it did strike me at least the level of connection with the character. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Some of the criticisms that you read about the current fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons are that it's it's too safe a game. You know, you have death savings, death uh, death saving throws, and other ways of kind of avoiding uh, your character just dropping dead when your hit points hit zero. And um, sometimes people will complain that the monster challenge ratings are geared in such a way that parties seldom um, encounter really grave danger when they're fighting whoever they're fighting for that day. Also, and just as, a, as an old school guy, like the whole idea that you can regenerate hit points on a long rest. Like I remember in our first campaign, someone, you probably explained this to me. I was amazed. I thought, you can do that? You, <laughs> we just go to sleep at night and then we wake up in the morning, all our hit points all are better. back. All <laughs> better. Um, and I, I get that. And that's fine. Yeah, I, I don't mean to sort of Pick, pick a bone about that but I think it, it's somewhat reflective of uh, this different sensibility in playing there are people who probably recognize acknowledge and even just embrace this more um, narrative character driven role-playing approach uh, and and for them this makes total sense and even for people who aren't so aware of this part of the game the game itself is designed to accommodate that you can make a character and spend a lot of time developing them and then unless you're really unlucky or really foolish you'll probably get to keep that character alive and that's just very different than 
the edition of D&D I have in front of me, or indeed some of the earlier ones where, you know, your your hit dice were for uh, a wizard would be like, or a magic user would be a 1d4. You, know, you might have one hit point going into that first dungeon if you're a wizard. And if you get hit by anything, you're just dead. It's over. Um, now, when that happened back in the day, you just made a new character. It was like, you know, your you know, Merlin version 2, who now just pops up and appears. Or you would have a party with a bunch of non-playing character um, uh, people carrying torches or carrying your treasure for you, and you just take over playing one of them. And I'm sure people back in the day felt a bit sad if their favorite character died, but um, I, you know, I personally didn't, and I don't, I don't remember a lot of people feeling that way. And I think it was just the game, the expectations for what the game were were just different. It was more, um, it was much, just more fast and loose, and, and death happened a lot. And you sort of cared a bit about your characters, but not that much, because you weren't really playing as them. Again, I, as I would imagine, you were sort of playing with them or sort of through them. You're the player playing the game. The character is sort of a contrivance that allows you to do that. Whereas uh, nowadays, I, I think it is the game it's, is at least in part, I'm imagining myself as deeply as I can to be this person and I'm, I'm necessarily going to invest in them. And when they suffer, I feel bad about that, even if even if it's part of the story. I mean, certainly the, the pathos of the character in Bandersnatch is very much that you're making, you know, he's suffering, you're making decisions that are involved in that suffering. In, in some sense, it's kind of your fault, at least some of the things that go wrong in his life and there's nothing that he can do about that and in a way there's nothing you can do about that either you don't get a choice to like have him live happily <laughs> like he takes his meds his is he has a good long talk with his father they forgive each other they go visit mom's grave and then 50 years later he's an older man and he thought you know my life got a lot better after that day you don't have that choice <laughs> he just yeah me too <laughs> Oh well, that's that's what would happen if it was the American version of, of Bandersnatch. That'd be a happy ending. I think some of that, to to jump a little bit, that some of that is probably a, a very English thing. I must say, some of the the UK uh, early D and D stuff from from England and all these fighting fantasy books are a bit more uh, bleak in their tone. They were then, and they probably still. Yeah, probably people playing D and D right now in England have a similar sort of mordant sensibility about it. <laughs> Oh well. Well, that what is there anything more to add for either of you? I mean, what an awesome and interesting conversation, and we really oh. covered quite a wide range of topics. And I've certainly enjoyed and just kind of hearing about the history and comparing it to some of my own experiences. But I want to open it up for any other kind of closing thoughts or or anything of that nature. Um, gosh, um, it, it, maybe really. A few thoughts, um, just as for me, as we wrap up. One, we've been using the phrase choose your own adventure, choose your own adventure repeatedly to refer in a generic sense to any kind of interactive fiction. And, I, you know, we're not alone. I think most people do that. And uh, just a funny bit of trivia, uh, Netflix, or at least the company that develops um, Black Mirror for Netflix, was sued in... Um, in 2019 by the company that now owns Choose Your Own Adventure, this Chuseco company. And they were sued because in that in that uh, show, in Bandersnatch, one of the characters, I think the protagonist, describes what he's doing as a Choose Your Own Adventure. And Chuseco 
thought that that was violating their trademarked name. And uh, uh, Netflix apparently countered that this is just fair use. It's such a ubiquitous uh, term. And as far as I could find on the internet before our podcast tonight, uh, that is still in litigation. So um, wow. it's just funny to know. I mean, it's, that, that's a, just a funny bit of trivia. Don't uh, come after us. No. Don't we com- properly attributed that that's how I'm going to beep did, out every uh, instance of it. It's, it's just, <laughs> just going to sound like safe. we were swearing all, all along. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> another thing that I was trying to work into conversation, but I couldn't find a way, and it just seemed like it would be too kind of uh, a deliberately highbrow, is one of my favorite authors, um, Jorge uh, Luis uh, Borges, has a couple short stories that he wrote in 1941. Uh, one's called The Examination of the Work of Herbert Quinn, and the other's called The Garden of Forking Paths. And these are these are both sort of short stories or maybe novella-length um, pieces of writing, but they are about this idea of stories which unfold in different pathways, like The Garden of Forking Paths. And so, you know, I like to throw him in there. He's a great author, and in some ways, you know, clearly people were doing choose-your-own-adventure-style writing before his time. But in some ways, he put kind of like this sort of high literary sheen on the whole thing. Can I ask you a question about that? What's so that? sometimes people talk <clears throat> about like statistics, statistical decisions. Like Gelman ta- is Gelman the first person who used the Garden of Forking Paths? Yeah, Andrew Andrew Gelman, the statistician at Columbia, uh, refers to a problem in data analysis that he calls the Garden of Forking Paths, which is a, a reference to Borges. And, and Gelman's idea is if you begin with a data set, it's like kind of you're entering one of those garden hedgerow mazes, right? And you make decisions as to how you handle that data. You know, do you transform certain variables you drop certain cases you know there are all sorts of decisions that you make and those like decisions that uh, a person walking through a maze might make choosing left or right will dictate the outcome often in ways that you're not that aware of i mean the person walking through the maze has some awareness presumably that choosing left leads them in a leftward direction but the statistician or the data analyst might not notice or not might not realize as deeply as he or she should that by making these little seeming decisions, you're kind of setting yourself off on a path that can have certain outcomes for how your data are analyzed. And unless you're fairly aware of those, you might mistakenly think that you just analyzed the data the one and only way that they could be analyzed, when really what you did was you wandered through a garden of forking paths. And um, you know that's I think that's an elegant and sort of literary way to describe a very significant problem in, in psychology and in other sciences at this time. Thank you. Do you yeah. have anything else that you wanted to? Uh, talk other things. Um, it, uh, if you are really interested in game books, game books being the more probably more accurate uh, term to refer to um, these choose your own adventure books that we've talked about, especially ones which have kind of dice mechanics or other kind of probability mechanics. There's a website. It's very easy to remember. It's gamebooks.org. <laughs> um, so that's easy enough, that right? That is intuitive. And it, is, um, it's, it has such a delightfully old school look. If you, if you go to it, it's called Damien's Gamebook webpage. And it just looks like an old sort of um, bulletin board, basically. And it's this guy who I believe is a librarian who has, with the help of a lot of other people who contribute, cataloged as far as i can tell almost every single game book that has ever existed and scrolling through you get a sense of how popular these books were at a certain point in time i mean there are just tons and tons and tons of them 
And uh, I go there sometimes when I'm looking for references to books that I'm trying to find or that I dimly re recollect from my childhood. And it's just kind of a funny place to see people who are interested in this uh, type of fiction. So that's, I guess that's my last point. And it, well, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, sorry, Brandon. No, I was going to say the exact same thing. We're on the same wavelength. Yeah, just wanted <laughs> to say thanks so much. And what an interesting and, and just, I mean, certainly, um, I don't know, a wide topic, I guess, uh, you know, covering a lot of, of history and um, a lot of things that, that at least we're calling um, choose your own adventures, um, TM. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just can't say how much I appreciate the conversation. And I think certainly I'm guessing the listeners will absolutely enjoy it too. Yeah. Thank you very much, Keith. Hey, no, no problem. Thanks for having me on. I, I enjoyed it. All right. Well, with that, thanks so much again, Keith. And thanks everyone for listening in. If you have any questions or thoughts or comments about Choose Your Own Adventures or your background with playing, you know, these types of games or reading these types of books or interacting with the new kind of live action media, we'd love to absolutely hear about it. So feel free to tweet at us or give us those thoughts via email or whatever way works best for you. And we'll be back again um, probably in a couple of weeks with another episode of Jedi Council. So in the meantime, take care and, um, and check out some kind of choose-your-own-adventure. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.